Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Welcome everyone to the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas. I'm a teacher. And if you think this podcast is about reading, writing and arithmetic, well, you will be sadly disappointed. It's actually about true crime in schools. This is episode 45. So welcome everyone. Let's say hello to some of our members in our Facebook group. Hello to Tammy Russell-Moore, Robin Murning, Linda Morgan and Noor Liana Shamshuddin. I hope I said that right. I'd also like to share with you a comment from a lady on Instagram who said, I really enjoy your podcast. I love true crime and my boyfriend said I should check out your podcast. I was hesitant because I'm very picky about my podcasts, but I absolutely love it. It is refreshing that you don't share the perpetrator's name during your podcast. I also enjoy the bad news first, and it's good to end on a good note sometimes. The quotes at the end are adorable, and I really enjoy them. I'm only on episode 23, but I really enjoy the minisodes, and I think you are doing a great job podcasting. Also, I respect you very much as a woman and a teacher. Thank you for everything you do, and I hope you stay safe during the pandemic and just your everyday life. Listening to these stories has made me look back at my childhood and my school stories that could have ended terribly. I work in a grocery store in a conservative province of Canada, and it's been difficult working during the pandemic. But listening to your podcast has really helped. It's just soothing, and I absolutely adore the accent. My name is Opal. I just thought I would tell you in some way that I really appreciate what you're doing. Isn't that lovely? Thank you so much, Opal. And hello also to anyone in Costa Rica. It's our country of focus today. In Costa Rica, married women keep their maiden names for life. And so you might think, well, what happens with the children? They take both the father's and the mother's surname in that order. So the first child takes the father's and the second, the mother's and so on. Costa Rica is well known for its animals and plants. But did you know there is a lizard that is called the Jesus Christ lizard? It can walk on water, which is how it got its name. In Costa Rica, there are no street addresses and many houses and buildings don't have numbers. So landmarks and compass directions are used to get around. So you might hear someone say something like, go 75 metres northwest of the old church, the building with the green door. If you visit the country and look for your hotel, you might be told something like this. 
go 200 metres south of the tree that was hit by lightning last year, then 50 metres east. It's the house in front of the house with the red gate. But in recent times, this has changed in many cities and now there are addresses. And finally, milk is sold in a plastic bag, not a carton. Isn't that interesting? It must be a very strong, thick plastic, as you'd think that it would be easily breakable. I'd love to really see what that looks like. Very intriguing. The music you heard at the start is a little clue for the story today. So let's preview the story today. It's called The Love Shack. What's wrong with this picture? A teacher, her husband and her student lover. This story took place in Knoxville, Tennessee in the US in 2007. The story revolves around a man named John. John grew up in a deeply religious family and he was described as carefree and outgoing. He developed a passion for music and was a talented drummer. He had plans to teach music in high school and had a dream to become a band director. At the age of 18, he met a 16-year-old girl named Rebecca, who also wanted to be a teacher. She was into drama, theatre and literature and was described as being intelligent and well-read. John and Rebecca hit it off immediately and when they were barely out of high school, they decided to live together. When Rebecca was 18, she became pregnant and they welcomed a baby boy and they got married soon after. John put aside his education so that Rebecca could pursue a master's program in English literature. The couple then welcomed another baby boy into their family. John eventually started studying to be a music and band teacher. Rebecca also started another master's degree in education and started a student teacher assignment at the Knoxville High School. Now we fast forward to the night of Saturday, March 10th, 2007, at around 9pm. John makes a call to 911. I will read you a transcript of the call. John says, Hello, I have an intruder in the house. Where are you? 2424 Coker Avenue. You have an intruder in your house? What do you mean by an intruder? Trespasser. Do you know this person? Yes. Okay, who is it? Some guy who's stalking my wife. He's been sleeping outside our house for the last couple of days. What's he wearing? Shorts, a red shirt, sandals. And then John adds, oh, now he's leaving. Okay, do you want to speak to an officer? Oh no, he's leaving now. John then hangs up and then seven minutes later, another call is made to 911 but this time it was Rebecca making the call. The operator says, 911, my husband just killed someone. What's the address, ma'am? 2424 Coker. Is he there with you right now? No, but the body's here. How did he do it? He shot him with a shotgun. Please come, hurry, hurry. Stay on the line, please. Don't hang up. Oh my God, oh my God. When police arrived, the intruder was dead and John was nowhere to be found. So, what's going on here? Yes, a man is dead, but they both knew him. He wasn't an intruder or a stalker, and it was supposedly John who killed him, according to Rebecca. So, who was this man? He was a 17-year-old student named Sean Powell that Rebecca was having an affair with. 
And not only that, but John knew about it. The man had been in their house many times, and their sexual affair even took place in the house while John was there, and he knew it was happening. Are you confused and shocked? Well, let me go on to explain. When the police arrived, the boy was dead in his car, which was parked outside John and Rebecca's house, and there was no sign of John. After the shooting, he had fled the scene and dropped the rifle on railroad tracks outside of town. The next day, John surrendered to the police. He was taken into custody and charged with first-degree murder. Right from the start, John admitted he had killed Sean, but that it was an accident. The murder would be taken to trial, but before I go on to describe the trial proceedings, I'm going to give you the accounts of both John and Rebecca. After listening to their stories, you can make your own prediction of what you think the outcome of the trial will be. So, let's start with Rebecca's account first. In the beginning, Rebecca said their relationship and marriage was great. They were raising a young family and both were pursuing their education while also working full-time. John was also spending nights performing in rock bands. But it was this busy lifestyle that meant they had less and less time to spend together. The couple grew further and further apart, and in the little time that their schedules did allow them to meet, it was usually spent arguing. Playing in a rock band meant John wouldn't come home until the early hours of the morning. Rebecca said he had had two affairs that she was aware of, but that she never cheated on him. While many described John as a quiet and peaceful man, Rebecca said he was sometimes prone to snap. She said there was one incident where he tried to shoot a man with a crossbow. He also once threatened her with a knife, but she never reported the incident. On another occasion, they were having an argument in the car and John allegedly rammed the car into their other car. According to Rebecca, John also had failed a class and had told her that he was going to kill the professor. When Sean came into her life, Rebecca said that's when John seemed to start having mental health issues. He started seeing a psychiatrist and two weeks before the murder, he started taking antidepressant medication for the first time. Although their marriage was falling apart, Rebecca wanted to keep the marriage together. She had been the child of a broken marriage and didn't want this to happen to her family. So she approached John with a plan that she felt would keep their family together. She proposed that they have an open marriage and according to her, John agreed. It was while Rebecca was a student teacher that she had access to the files of the Year 12 students at her school. Sean's file detailed that he had a mother who was a prostitute and addicted to crack cocaine. He had suffered physical abuse and molestation and at the age of six was adopted by another family. Rebecca identified with Sean as she had had a troubled background herself. She admired the boy he had become, very intelligent and talented, and she wanted to nurture his potential. However, Sean had a setback when he was caught with alcohol at school and was suspended. He went to substance abuse rehab and Rebecca was keen to help him. They began having phone conversations which eventually became sexual and the relationship developed from there. Rebecca says John was aware 
but became conflicted, although he had agreed to an open marriage. So he sought advice online on a website named Open Marriage Expert, and here is what he wrote. I have been married for 10 years. My wife has lost interest in me sexually, and she wants to have an open marriage. I want her to be happy, but I'm probably going to have major jealousy issues. I'm not interested in any other woman, but I believe she is interested in a specific young man in his late teens. I'm 31 and my wife is 29. Now that we have discussed the possibility of having an open marriage, I keep getting mental pictures of other men with my wife, so much so that I get sick to the stomach and irritated. Again, I want her to be happy. I know that she doesn't desire me anymore, which means I can't satisfy her needs, but I don't know if this will work. Also, she's very attractive, so she won't have trouble getting any number of suitors in the future. And men are probably more open to the idea of having sex with another man's wife than women are to having sex with a married man. I'd imagine that a woman would probably demand I break off my relationship with my wife, that is, if I became interested in another woman. Do I sound like a bad candidate for an open marriage? The reply agreed he was a bad candidate for open marriage and suggested they seek counselling or divorce. Sean was kicked out of rehab and called Rebecca saying he needed help and didn't have anywhere to stay. John agreed to go and pick him up and allowed him to stay at a space where the members of his band practised. The next day, Rebecca and John and their children went to church and also picked up Sean, and they all went together, then going out to lunch afterwards. They dropped Sean back, and he stayed there for another week, saying his adoptive mother wouldn't let him back. John then found him a house to stay at, which was listed for sale by his father, who was a realtor. It was this time after Sean left rehab that their relationship became sexual, which John was fully aware of. John even took his kids over to where Sean was living, watching games and eating pizza with him. Hmm. One night, the three of them went out drinking, and when they returned home, John suggested that they have a menage a trois, but they declined, going on to have sex by themselves with John in the house. Rebecca says they continued having their relationship and that John was always present. Sean was apparently flaunting the fact that he was sleeping with his teacher. Rebecca disapproved and told him to stop, but it continued. She said, I really believe the whole involvement of Sean was more to do with him and John than it had anything to do with me. He was trying to see how far he could transgress and I really think he was trying to get John to kill him. I really believe that. On the night before the shooting, their children went to stay with John's parents, and they were also there on the night of the shooting. Rebecca said this was John's idea, and also she thought it was unusual, as the kids had never spent more than one night away from their parents. Therefore, she believed John had planned to kill Sean that night. On the first night the kids were away, Rebecca and Sean had gone out to see a play and when they returned, the three of them talked and listened to music and then Rebecca and John went to bed but by this stage they had separate bedrooms while Sean slept on their couch. 
During the night, John went to her room and asked her to come to his room as he had something important to say to her. But when she got there, he didn't say anything. He just stood there. She found out later that he had a rifle in the house and suspects that he was going to kill her, but that he couldn't go through with it. Now we come to the next day when Sean would be killed. On that morning, Sean was teasing and taunting John about his relationship with Rebecca. Both of them told him to leave, which he did. Later that day, John told Rebecca that her best friend of 10 years had made a sexual advance towards him and that he was considering it. While Rebecca understood they had an open marriage, she told him close friends should be off limits. She was very upset. Then Sean called and wanted to come and pick her up. John said, You know what? If you go with him, don't come back. Sean arrived shortly after and Rebecca noticed that there was something wrong with him. Toxicology results later showed that alcohol and cocaine were in his system. When Sean arrived, he continued with his usual taunting of John, saying, I'm taking your wife on a date. John then called 911, and as we have already seen, he referred to Sean as an intruder and stalker. Sean then backed away, saying, I'm cool, man, I'm leaving. Rebecca believed she knew why John called him an intruder. Previously, he had mentioned to her that he believed in Tennessee, homemakers had the right to kill intruders in self-defense. Rebecca followed Sean out and they sat talking together. She told him to leave, that she did not intend to end their marriage. John threatened to lock her out of the house and get a restraining order so that she would never see her kids again. Rebecca then decided to leave with Sean and went back inside to get her phone and purse. Sean went and waited in his car. While in the house, Rebecca heard a loud noise but didn't know it was a gunshot. She went outside and saw John standing next to the car with the gun. She then moved closer and saw Sean inside the car and began screaming. She said that John calmly said to her, Congratulations. In the aftermath, she started getting threats and insults and was harassed by the media. So she decided to leave the town with her children. She went to Nashville and got a job at a school, but was subsequently accused of making advances towards a teenage student. She believed the accusation only came about when people found out who she was. At the time of his death, Sean had just turned 18. She was asked if there is anything wrong with an adult woman being involved with an 18-year-old, and she replied, no, because they are legally adults. Then when asked, what about a 17-year-old boy? And she replied, well, that's illegal. Amazing, right? She was asked if Sean was too young for her, and she replied, you know, he had vastly more life experience than I did. He was involved with another 30-year-old woman at the same time that he was involved with me. He had had numerous lovers of both sexes. He had travelled all over the place. I had done none of that. And she added, It was the biggest mistake of my life and a regret that I'll carry for the rest of my life. I'm not saying he was a bad guy. If he were alive today, I would still be his friend. But he was manipulative and troubled 
and absolutely it was a huge mistake. Rebecca said both she and her mother received postcards that she believed were written by John as it looked like his handwriting. The postcard said, Everyone knows you were grooming Sean to kill John and collect the life insurance. You are a child molester. You are a master manipulator. You beat your son for telling the truth. You will never be a teacher for everyone knows you aren't safe around 17 and 18 year old children. Your children know who you are. Your mother knows who you are. Everyone knows you are a cheap, no account, unfaithful skank. You will never be free of your actions. Rebecca then moved to Texas, saying she simply could not live there anymore due to the treatment that she had received. John was granted bail, and then 10 days after the murder, he does a television interview. Now, this surprised me, as wouldn't his lawyer have advised not to give media interviews, as this could prejudice the case. Here is an exchange between John and the interviewer. The interviewer asks, and I'll ask you point blank, did you shoot Sean Powell? Yes. You knew that she was having an affair? I mean, I mean, I pretty much knew. I think I was just like in denial for a long time, you know? Well, why not leave? Why not leave her? I don't know. I just couldn't leave her. Explain that. Why not? Because I love her. He then started crying and said, I just feel really bad about the whole thing. He then went on to describe what their marriage was like in the beginning. He described the marriage the same as Rebecca did. It was great in the beginning. They were building a life and family together. But then Rebecca started to feel that she had lost her youth and blamed John and even their young son. He also said that she became physical. She would have outbursts and say that he could have the kids, the house, the estate, and she just wanted her freedom. She told him a number of times that she didn't love him anymore. It was then that she told him she wanted to have affairs and he was shocked. Then Sean came onto the scene and John just thought she was trying to help him. But his suspicions soon began. He admitted that all three of them had gone out, but he said he was in a sort of denial. He didn't want to lose his marriage and his family and became very depressed and then sought professional help. He was seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist regularly. Life at home was getting worse. Rebecca started being very abusive with the children. And her affair with Sean was finally confirmed when their 11-year-old son said he saw them holding hands and kissing. And sometime not long after, John actually walked in on them having sex. On one occasion, Rebecca was yelling at their son for being disrespectful towards her. To which John replied, well, probably because he thinks his mother's a whore. But John persevered, thinking that eventually she would come around. Now, to get to the night of the killing. Here is John's account. John said he had stolen the rifle from a relative after finding out that Rebecca was having an affair with the boy. His intention was to kill himself, but he said he couldn't go through with it. He pointed the gun at Sean because he wanted him to leave. Sean then mocked him and grabbed the rifle, which then went off accidentally. He said, I think about him a lot. I'm just really sorry about it, all of this, but I never wanted any of this stuff to happen. 
During the interview, the interviewer noticed that John still had his wedding band on, and John said, I still love her, but I know we can't be together anymore. So now you have heard both of their accounts. Now we will go on to the trial. Have a think about everything you have heard and make your prediction. Will he be found guilty of first-degree murder or maybe a lesser sentence such as manslaughter? Will he serve jail time and how long would you think would be appropriate? The trial lasted 10 days and here is John's version of events. Much to my surprise, John went onto the witness stand in his own defence. Isn't that something that defence attorneys strongly advise against? John said after he made the 911 call, he followed Sean and Rebecca outside. John claimed that both of them were laughing at him for calling 911 with Rebecca yelling, Sean is 10 times the man you are. I don't want my boys around you. I am leaving with Sean. She then went inside to get some belongings and John says he got the rifle from his truck that he had intended to use to commit suicide. Sean said to John, in two weeks they will be calling me daddy. John pointed the gun at him. Sean grabbed it and it went off. John did a dramatisation in the courtroom of what he claimed happened. The prosecution argued that John was a cold-blooded killer who planned and carried out a plot to kill his wife's lover and that therefore it was a case of first-degree murder. The defence argued the shooting was an accident, that John had tried to scare the boy into leaving and that Sean had grabbed the rifle, which had made it discharge. John delivered an emotional recount of the humiliations and indignities that he had suffered in the months leading up to the event. Rebecca was portrayed as being brazen in flaunting her relationship with the boy in front of her husband. The rumours that she had seduced another boy and fled with her children didn't help the prosecution's case either. She had been sacked from the school after the allegation came to light when it was discovered that she had made a number of calls to that particular student but also because she hadn't been honest in her interview and there were questions raised about her resume. Rebecca was supposed to give testimony but didn't turn up at the trial. Therefore, the jury only had John's testimony to consider. So I want you to consider what verdict you would deliver. John was not found guilty of first-degree murder. He was also not guilty of voluntary manslaughter which is defined as a killing committed in the heat of passion. John was ultimately found guilty of reckless homicide. So, how does that compare with what you thought? The verdict meant that the jury believed John and his version of events, but that he should still be held accountable for brandishing the rifle. His lawyer believed it was John's own testimony and the demonstration that swayed the jurors. He said, John has shown this jury who he is. You can't fake that. John said, I'm just shaking. I feel hopeful and I feel hopeful again for my children that they can have a good life. The prosecution lawyer conveyed that Sean's adoptive parents had this to say. They loved this boy. He was their son and he was killed. 
They just feel by this verdict the jury did not think much about the value of Sean Powell's life. Yeah, and actually I tend to agree with this. First degree murder came with a 51-year prison term, which John had managed to avoid. Reckless homicide carried a penalty of two to four years with the eligibility for probation. John had no criminal record and therefore his lawyer argued for probation. The court reconvened at a later date for the sentencing. Sean's adoptive mother said the following in her victim impact statement. Many mornings I wake up knowing our child was taken so violently. Our family has been torn apart. John also made the following statement. I just want to apologise. I think about him all the time. It's just been devastating to everyone. It's been devastating to your family and I'm sorry for that. His death is going to haunt me forever. I never intended to hurt him. I can't express that enough. I just wish I could go back and change things or do things differently, but I can't. John was given the maximum sentence of four years and was ordered to spend a total of 90 days in jail only. John had already served 43 days awaiting bond. He was taken into custody immediately to begin serving the remaining 47 days. He was also given 12 years probation. Now, I really didn't get this, and you may not understand it either, but basically, if he violates probation, then he will have to serve the full four years. But of course, if he kills someone again, he'll get a lot more than that. After the sentencing, Sean's birth mother said, I love my son and I wish he was back here with me. He murdered my son. He's a cold-blooded murderer. He deserves more time. Before the trial, John and Rebecca had divorced and he had also filed for custody of the children. After the verdict was delivered, they set about finding Rebecca. She and the children were eventually found, but she denied fleeing so that John couldn't get access to the children. She said it was because she received so much taunting in her hometown that she had no choice but to move to avoid the media circus. An 18-year-old boy was found to be living with them, and she described him as a temporary helper. Hmm, do you believe that? At the custody hearing, Rebecca was accused of taking the couple's sons out of state without permission and was sentenced to 90 days in jail. She was taken away in handcuffs. Isn't it bizarre that she ended up serving more time than John did for killing Sean? John was given primary custody of the boys and Rebecca was required to pay child support. So here are my thoughts. I must say I was very surprised at the verdict. It just seemed too lenient for killing a person. They determined he was reckless, but that recklessness caused a person to lose their life. Regardless of how it happened, there should have been a harsher sentence. A person can be reckless behind the wheel of a car, perhaps speeding and causing an accident. But using the word reckless to describe someone being killed seems to be an inappropriate word. This was an interesting case as there was no evidence to argue about. As true crime listeners, we often hear stories where the evidence is picked apart with the defence providing their argument and the prosecution providing theirs. It then comes down to the jury to decide. But in this case, it was just John's word and they believed him. 
So in cases like this, the jury has to decide based on their gut feeling about the accused person. How do they come across? Do they think they are genuine in what they are saying? And they obviously believe that John was. And also, very interestingly, what if John hadn't admitted to doing it? What if he had made up another story? Did his honesty actually work in his favour? There's lots to think about there. They believed his version of events, particularly the part where Sean grabbed the barrel of the gun. Now, this part of his testimony could have been easily tested. If fingerprints were taken, Sean's would have been there confirming the story. But I did not read anywhere about whether the fingerprints were tested. As I always do, I try to find an update on the stories that I present. And after 10 years, one of the jurors spoke about the case. She said this about Sean. He just seemed like he taunted John, just kept rubbing his nose in it. You know, he never had a chance, but then again, he pushed it. And here is what she said about John. This guy is breaking up his home and I really felt sorry for him. I know the boy. He didn't deserve to die, but he didn't need to be doing what he was doing either. Rebecca's divorce lawyer said she was misunderstood and suffered from PTSD after witnessing the shooting and that therefore she was in no condition to take the stand. The lawyer said she was so toxic by the time he went to trial, they didn't subpoena her to testify. She didn't testify. It was like they put her in the electric chair. At the same time, I was seeing people cheer someone who pulled the trigger and shot someone in the face. I never could grasp it. I can't grasp it now. I read that a legal analyst said no one knows what John's intent was but John himself and he stated that could easily have been a second degree case, a voluntary manslaughter case, but remarkably reckless homicide. I tend to agree. That was also my initial reaction. It just seemed too lenient. Rebecca was contacted for comment but did not wish to respond, although it was known that she was in Texas working as a freelance writer. John said he was doing well and that the boys were almost grown. To me, this story was wrong in so many ways. It sounded like the jury really felt sorry for John, like he was the victim. No, Sean was the victim. John allowed Rebecca to treat him the way she did. He should not have allowed them to flaunt themselves in their home in front of the children. She shouldn't have done it and he shouldn't have allowed it. Conduct the affair elsewhere if that's what you want to do. How confused would those two boys have been? What children see in their home environment is what they think as normal, but the situation was not normal and both of them were bad parents in my opinion. And what about when she said at 18 their relationship was legal? but not legal a day before he turned 18. Yes, technically, but not morally. What a pathetic excuse. She was having an affair with a student. Call it for what it was. I just don't understand people like John, whose partners clearly have no feelings for them. They have an affair and he says he still loves her. Where was his self-respect? It's over, mate. Move on. You wanted to keep the family together, but what family? Those boys will be forever affected by what happened. And what sort of men will they grow into being? And what about Rebecca saying that Sean was taunting John because he wanted John to kill him? 
What a bizarre thing to say. She said the situation was more to do with the two of them and not her. Oh, lady, just listen to yourself. And she also justified being with Sean by saying he was much more experienced than her. To me, she was the one who was immature for her age. And then poor Rebecca had to leave town because it was a media circus. Gee, lady, you bought the whole thing on yourself. And then she was with another 18-year-old who was living with her that she called a temporary helper. Dear, oh dear, why don't you just admit that you like young men? As well as Sean, those two boys were also victims. Such a shame that kids can't choose their parents. Now you would know that in my podcast, I don't name the perpetrators and instead use the pronouns he and she or man or woman. In this episode, I decided not to use the real names of the husband and wife, but I gave them other names. The student's name, however, was correct as he was the victim. Initially, I had used the pronouns and then man and woman, but it didn't have a really good feel to the story as I was reading it back. So that's why I decided to make up names for them. Let's now finish with a podcast recommendation. Have a listen. We were able to capture some fingerprints, but again, same as the DNA, we haven't been able to, to match that to anybody. He's probably one of the biggest considered open-hearted people that I knew, but you know, honestly, he had uh, an addiction too, right? Get the writing, we can talk. There's a possibility here that there were childhood traumas. We're trying to turn every stone to, to find evidence. This is Genevieve Germain, host of True Crime Real Time. Join me on a bi-weekly dive into the lives of the missing and murdered. Available wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll never know who else you'll meet along the way. I'd now like to give you a preview of the next episode. It's called All Aboard. Here's a summary. The student teachers boarded the bus. What happened next? So to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Students will forget what the books taught but they will never forget what the teacher said. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.